Now, if you'd open your Bibles to Romans chapter 13, please. Romans chapter 13, we're going to be looking at the final four verses of the chapter, verses 11 to 14. And then you may also want to open your Bible, get your finger in Psalm 90, if you would, because I'm going to go back to that as we begin reading the text in Romans. Now, you'll notice what verse 11 says of Romans chapter 13, do this. Actually, the text just says, and this, grammatically, knowing the time that is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed, the night is almost gone, the day is near. Now, the great theologian Mick Jagger, (laughs) in the 1960s, had a song that said, time is on our side. I want you to go back to Psalm 90. I want you to notice verse 10. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years, yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger? And your fury according to the fear that is due you. So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Time is not on our side. A wise person understands that. Time is not on our side. Back to Romans. Since the night is almost gone and the day is near, therefore let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of the scriptures this morning and the exposition that will take place a little later. Will you join with me, please, in prayer? Heavenly Father, we bow before thee today to thank you for being the God you are. You've put up with us for many years with your patience, with your grace, with your mercy. We pray that you would instill in us the reality that time is fleeting. We don't know how long you'll permit us to be here, but while we are here, we pray that you would allow us to be a reflection of your saving grace. We pray that when our time on this earth is over, you'll be pleased with us as individuals and as a church. I pray we would finish the race winners, not losers. May we finish the course unashamed before thee. And we thank you so much for the wonderful privilege that we've had of living in this United States of America. Lord, we've drifted far, far, far away from you. We think of the Supreme Court's decision in 1962 and 63 to take prayer to you out of our schools. Lord, forgive us for that. We pray that those in high positions of power in the executive branch and the judicial branch and the legislative branch will realize the importance and the significance and the responsibility of turning this nation back to thee. Lord, those in positions of power will not come to this conviction on their own, so we would ask that you would work in their minds and turn them to making right, true, just decisions that will please thee. Lord, in this very passage of scripture, Paul was looking for you to come to get us. We look for the same thing. Come get us soon. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Last week, the former chairman of our board in Pocatello and my friend Larry Getz was in Yellowstone, and he sent me some pictures of a bull elk, and that brought back a flood of memories. It's the last Sunday of September, and for many years when we lived out there, and even for a while when we were back here, I look forward to September 26th, which was the opening day of elk hunting in Wyoming. Now, the place that I would hunt was 40 miles into the mountains, and the last 30 miles of it, you had to go by four-wheel drive. And I would try to get into the mountains, set up my camp one to two days before opening day. There's a lot of preparatory work and thought that goes into getting ready for that day. I actually had a checklist. I would check out all the equipment, I sighted my rifle, I checked the ammo, make sure I had enough of that, I would get the horses in shape, I checked the food supply that I was packing in, I had to make sure I could get them certified weed-free hay, plus have all of the feed for the horses, I checked my tent, my clothes, I set that up, I had to make sure everything was good to go, including the truck and the horse trailer. A lot of preparatory work involved in the weeks before the hunt. In Romans 12 to 13, Paul has been setting forth a checklist, a checklist of responsibilities that we are to have in view of the fact that this amazing doctrine of God's grace has been given to us in justification. And he just basically goes through a list of things that he wants us to know and things that he wants us to do. We have the responsibility to present ourselves a living sacrifice have a transformed mind that's being transformed by the word of God. We have the responsibility to realistically discover and use our gift. We're not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. We're to recognize what God has given us the skills to do. We have the responsibility to fervently serve the Lord. All of us do in the context of the church. We have the responsibility not to take vengeance out on enemies when they do things that are against us. We have the responsibility to submit to government. We have the responsibility to demonstrate biblical love to the world. But when you come to this text of scripture, Paul says you have one more responsibility. You have the responsibility to carefully make personal preparations to get ready to go. You have to get ready to go. And it's so easy in this world to get confused on that. I love the lights in this church. When this church was constructed, they put a light system in, so with the exception of the sanctuary and a couple of places, you walk into the facility here and the lights go on. I mean, you walk down the hall, the lights pop on. You go into my office, the lights pop on. You go into the secretary's office and, and Lynn's light pops on. Problem is, and this is absolutely true, yesterday I walked into my closet at home and the light didn't go on. True, this is what happened. I'm standing there going, how come the light's not going? Oh, yeah, you're at home. Flip a switch. <laughs> it's easy to become confused. And what we need to realize is we are waiting for the light to go on in the appearance of the morning star. And that's exactly what Paul was after here. In view of the fact that the hour is nearing for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, in view of the fact that the dark night is almost gone, there are preparatory things that God's people need to do and things they should not do. And they should not want to do. Now, here is the greatest motivation for application of anything from the word of God. Jesus Christ is coming back to get us, and we're going to see him. There's the greatest motivation 
for any of us saying, you know, we better take this stuff seriously. He's coming back. We're going to see him. And in verse 11, Paul begins, do this. He has a do this list and a not do this list. It's like a checklist. So he basically says, here's what believers need to be doing, and here's what you don't want to be doing. Here's a checklist of things to go over in view of the fact that you will be leaving soon. And you cannot help but see the references here to time. He uses as a basis for these challenges the element of time. There are four references to time that prompts Paul to write this. He says it's already an hour of time for you to put this list into effect. It's already the hour for you to do this. We're nearer to the finale of our salvation than when we first believed. The night is almost gone. The day is near. Now, we are time-conscious people. I would be willing to say, for most people in this sanctuary today, most people watching this in live stream, the first question that you ask when you wake up in the morning is, what time is it? Hey, how many things do you have in your house that tell time? In fact, there's an assignment. Go home between services and figure that out. I did. I figured it out. We have two televisions. Both televisions have time on it. We have two iPhones. That has time on it. Two iPads. That has time on it. We have three appliances in the kitchen that have time. We have three alarm clocks. We have three clocks mounted on the wall, and I have a wristwatch. We actually have 16 things in our house that tell time. But answer me this. With all of the things that we have that tell us the time, how much time do we have left? How much time do you have left? How much time do I have left? I'm not looking for death. I'm looking for Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what Paul wanted here. He says, look, you need to understand something. You're not too far away from seeing the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, the long, dark night is almost over and daybreak is almost here. He believed that Jesus Christ could return at any single moment. And he wanted believers to think very seriously about what they were doing and what they shouldn't be doing with their time. Redeem the time because we've been redeemed and we're heading to the day of redemption. And life is a long, dark night, and we're nearing daybreak. And Paul said, you need to be examining what you're doing, and then you need to take a look at what you don't want to do. Jonathan Edwards, in 1734, the theologian and revivalist, preached a sermon he called The Preciousness of Time and the Importance of Redeeming It. And in that sermon, he made some observations. Number one, time is very short and very precious. We do not know how much time we have left. We cannot regain time that's already gone. We are accountable to God for what we do with our time. And we all need to improve the use of our time. So as we analyze what Paul writes, he's going to give us a list of things here that he wants us to examine to determine where we're at in all of this. As we prepare to leave this world, he's basically saying, get ready to go. There are two parts, simple parts to the process. Number one, in view of the fact that it's nearing time for us to leave, here's what we are to do. Verses 12 to 13. These verses were the verses these end verses of the 13th chapter that Augustine read the night God saved him. 
He said he read these verses, put off the deeds of darkness, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and he said, instantly I was saved. Now there are five positive actions we are to take as we get ready to go in the process of development, and it is a process. And the first action is wake up from your sleep. That's what he says in verse 11. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. I want to point out a couple of things here. First of all, the word for sleep, a hoopnu, is the word from which we get our English word hypnotic. So there are people that can actually be involved in the church and they're in like some hypnotic state. And I do want to point out, by the way, that all of these things that are written here are addressed to believers in the church. In fact, Paul will use his own personal pronoun, let us behave properly. He puts himself in the mix. So he's not addressing unbelievers. He's addressing believers who go to church. And what this tells us, it is possible to be a very religious person and go to church and be sound asleep in a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ. You can be very religious and be sound asleep spiritually. There are people that just go through the motions in some hypnotic spiritual state. They read the Bible because they're used to doing that. They throw some money in the offering plate because they do that. They rattle off a prayer or two for the food every now and then concerning something, but nothing really happens to them dynamically. Nothing happens to them that is causing life to go forward. Why? They're asleep. Paul obviously felt that as a threat for these believers in Rome. And frankly, this world is getting very dark. It's a very dark, evil, depraved world in which we're living. It's a world that flaunts abominable sins. It's a world that promotes acceptance of things that are perverse and perverted and deviant. And when the Apostle Paul wrote his last letter before he was executed, he said that in the last days people will be unholy, they will be brutal, they'll be haters of good, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, and many of these people are going to have a religious aura about them. Paul said, stay away from that. Stay away from those kinds of people. And frankly, I don't know what it will take for some people to wake up and get serious about God and his word. I just don't know. Because if you look at this world and that's not prompting you to wake up and get serious about the word of God, I don't know what can. You would think that this dark world would wake people up. God's people would want to saturate themselves with the things of the Lord, saturate themselves with the word of God. And if this world doesn't prompt you to take church seriously, I don't know what's going to do it. I mean, I think sometimes people going to church Sunday morning is just like a hypnotic ritual state they're in. They're not going in there expecting the living God to deal with them, the Spirit of God to convict them so they can grow and make adjustments in life. They're just going through some religious ritual motion. Paul says, wake up from your sleep. You want to get ready to go meet the Lord? Wake up. Secondly, lay aside works of darkness. Verse 12, therefore let us lay aside deeds of darkness. You'll have to know what things are dark, and you learn about what things are dark in the scriptures, so you're going to have to be pretty serious about the scriptures. 
so that when you spot those dark things, you can lay them aside. The verb lay aside is a middle voice verb, which means we are not only involved in the action, we are involved in the results of this action. It's an aorist tense verb, which indicates you don't need to pray about this. This is decisive action you need to take. This is decisive action in and of yourself you need to take. It's our responsibility, each of us, to spot those things that are dark and get rid of them. Get them out of our lives. And the word darkness has to do with darkness that actually has a flare of secrecy to it. Skotas. This would be the kind of darkness that you might have, that someone could have, I might have, no one else would see. This could be a real darkness of your mind. It could be a real darkness of your life. It could be a real darkness of spirituality. And no one would know this little dark spot except you. Paul says, you get that out. You want to get ready to go? Here's a checklist. You go down through there and you spot the works that are dark and you get them out of your life now. And the... Noun works is articular, speaking of specific works peculiar to the individual. So what Paul is saying is it's every believer's responsibility to do honest, introspective analysis of themselves and spot dark things, and it's their responsibility as an individual, get them out of your life. So Paul says, You want to get ready to go? Checklist point number two. Wake up from your sleep and get rid of things that are dark in your life. Look, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, you don't want to be doing dark stuff. You don't want dark things in your life when he comes back. So Paul says there, there's a checklist pattern number two. That's what you do. Wake up from your sleep, lay aside works of darkness. Number three, put on the armor of light. Verse 12 and put on the armor of light. Now, why does he call it armor? This is war, friends. This is a warfare. We're in a warfare with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we need the armor of God. We, quite frankly, every day, we can't go out in public in our night clothes. I mean, nobody showed up here today in their pajamas that I know of. You got your church clothes on. Why? We're going to church. What Paul says is you're going to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to put on the armor of light. The most significant New Testament passage about grace armor is Ephesians 6, 11 to 17. And in that text, there's a major emphasis on you be very serious about taking the truth of the word of God because the word of God is our light. The word of God is our lamp. So you be very serious about taking in the scriptures and understanding them, believing them, then applying them and let people know you're serious about that. Put on that armor of light that coincides with the word of God. And then he says, behave properly. That's what he says. Verse 13, let us behave properly as in the day. Now, the actual word properly is a word that means we have a responsibility to walk through life in a way that we're viewed as having good behavior. 
and a walking process is step by step over and over and over again. That's how you program yourself to behave properly. Now, there are some people who take the position, well, I don't care what people think. You better. You better care. Because when you see the Lord Jesus Christ, he's going to make some analysis of whether or not we behave properly while we were here on earth reflecting him. So what Paul basically says is you have a responsibility to govern your life in a way that behaves properly and honorably. You have a responsibility to live your life in a way that lines up with the scriptures as if you are decorated by the righteousness of God. And then he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're going to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, rags have to go. Sin has to go. You know, when I was a kid, I put on a Superman costume and jumped off the back of our roof. It wasn't real high, maybe eight feet, maybe that. I couldn't fly. It didn't work. The suit didn't work like it did in the Superman program or the Superman movie. When people put on clothes or a costume or a uniform, they somehow in their minds say, well, we've got to really become part of this and act the part. Well, here's what Paul says. You don't put on a uniform. You put on a person. You put on Jesus Christ. And how do you put on Jesus Christ? You take the word of God... You take it seriously and you apply it to your life and you'll end up looking like him. That is our responsibility. Our responsibility is to take the scriptures and be serious about the scriptures to the point that we start reflecting the Lord Jesus Christ in the way that we live, in the way that we think, and in the way that we act. Put on Christ. He said, there's your checklist of what you want to be doing. That's what you want to work on. That's what you want to be doing. Checklist number one. Part number two, here's what you're not to do. Now, everything we're about to go through on this list that's in this text basically stems from a mindset that says, life is about me. I don't care if I'm going to see Jesus Christ, life is about me. And what we have here is a list of public stuff and private stuff and personal stuff. They're all sin stuff. And it all stems from somebody to say, my life is about me and I'm going to live it my way and I'm going to pursue my own happiness and my own pleasure, my own enjoyment. Paul says, that's really not the way you want to be acting when you see Jesus Christ. And there are seven actions you don't want to be involved in as you get ready to go. And every one of these actions is due to the fact that people forget what time it is. They forget time's running out. Action number one, don't be involved in carousing. Verse 13, let us behave properly as in the day. Now notice this, the negation, not in carousing. Interesting word, komois, carousing. It's a word that talks about noisy, riotous, nighttime drinking revelry. The word has to do with drinking parties. 
that go well into the night. It refers you to get together with a bunch of people that love the booze. They're loud, they're noisy, they're raunchy. It's the kind of stuff you find at nightclubs, bars, sometimes at home parties, gatherings, or apartments. What Paul says is in view of the fact that Christ is returning soon to get you, you don't want to be hiding out in bars. You don't want to be in there. You don't want to be pursuing that life. The world says enjoy it. Jesus Christ says, I don't want to see it when I come back and get you. The world says enjoy a Mardi Gras spring break type of life. Paul says no. God's people that are getting ready to go, they're going through this checklist, they'll stay away from carousing. Then he says, don't be involved in drunkenness. Verse 13, and drunkenness. This is kind of sin that someone could do privately. I mean, they're just at home drinking to be drunk. It's an interesting word, too. It's methice, drunkenness, which is the word from which we get our English word meth. So I would take this to be more than just getting drunk with alcohol. I would take this also as a reference to just having an intoxicated mind by marijuana or meth or whatever. God says to his people, look, I'm coming to get you soon. You don't want to be some drunk or some pothead or some meth addict. And by the way, it's not a disease that needs to be treated. It's a dark sin that needs to be purged. You don't want to be sitting at home getting drunk or smoking pot or taking drugs when Jesus Christ comes to get you. You do not want to be in some state of stupor when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back because he says, hey, you're my property. I don't want you involved in that. Get rid of that. And the assumption Paul makes when he says behave properly is you're not going to be involved in drunkenness and God's people have the power to stop it. If your problem is drinking and getting drunk, you better put that on the bullseye of your life and get it out. Because Jesus Christ is coming to get you. Think of the time we're at. Get rid of it. Cut it out of your life. Now, drinking was a real problem of the early church. Some of the people were actually going to communion services and getting drunk. They were drinking way more than they should have ever drank. The Bible certainly is not legalistic when it comes to this, but man, I'm telling you, if you have a drinking problem, you get drunk with it, get it out of your life. You don't want to be fooling around with it. The third action is don't be involved in sexual promiscuity. That's what he says in verse 13, not in sexual promiscuity. This is a private bedroom kind of sin. Who would know this? The Lord Jesus Christ is coming to get us. That's who'd know it. The word refers to the fact that God expects his people to be pure, not involved in any sexual activity outside of the marriage relationship. Sexual promiscuity is a dark, dark sin in the sight of God. Literally, I know the word's going to be graphic here, but the particular word that's used here, coite, is a word that literally means you go to bed with somebody that's not your mate. That's the flair of the Greek word here. 
Sexual immorality is a sin that's different in the mind of God than any other sin. You don't want to be involved in that. Man, you want to have that behind you. You want to have that dealt with. You don't want to be pursuing that when Christ returns. The fourth action, don't be involved in sensuality either. Verse 13, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality. Sensuality, uncontrolled lust. This word has to do with immoral licentiousness or excess at unusual levels. It was used for people that would indulge himself in anything, anything without restraint. This kind of mentality has no shame, it has no conviction, it has no moral restraint. This is a real ugly word here, quite honestly. It's a word that is used in the Greek language of one who would give himself over to all kinds of shameful, disgraceful physical, immoral types of things. This kind of person does things in public most wouldn't even do in private. And we have another problem here in our day, and the problem is we have things that are shameful and disgraceful that you can get online and you can get on a TV and you can just sit at home thinking, nobody knows I'm doing this. And Paul says, you may think no one knows or sees, but God does. And when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back to get you, you don't want to have that in your life. Get rid of it. Lay it aside. I've known of Christians who have done some pretty horrible kinds of things. Christians because they got caught up in the sensual. Paul says, get rid of it. There's one thing on the checklist, get rid of it. The fifth action is don't be involved in strife either. He adds that to the list, not in strife. It's the word epis, which is a word that has to do with bickering and arguing. There are some people that just want to be contentious. They just want to fight. They're argumentative. That's all they do. They want to argue. And the Greek word refers to somebody that's always involved in some petty argument, petty wrangling. It's used of contention between two believers. And usually the cause of the contention is not some basic biblical or theological issue. It's usually some self-centered, competitive, personal ambition. Gerard Kittle said that in God's mind, this person is one despite Despicable character, because instead of esteeming others better than themselves, he selfishly causes strife in the family of God. You don't want that on your account. Get rid of it. Lay it aside. Then he adds to the list, don't be involved in jealousy. Verse 13, and jealousy. I'll tell you what, he puts the sin of strife and jealousy in the same context as drunkenness and sexual immorality. That's how serious this stuff is. Jealousy is a sin of wanting something someone else has. It's evil resentment. It is an evil resentment that somebody has something that we don't have. And it's usually someone who's real emotional. They don't control their thoughts. They react emotionally. So if somebody has a house or job or car or money or looks or a figure or talent or gift or an ability and they don't have it, I mean, their emotions surge and they just are jealous about it. They don't like it. 
Paul says, you need to see this for what it is here. This is evil sin. You don't want it in your world. You don't want it in your life. It's in the same context as being a drunk. It's in the same context of being sexually immoral. In fact, Proverbs says, jealousy is rottenness to your bones. Jealousy can exist in a right way. We'll see it tonight. But the fact of the matter is, jealousy, for the most part, is never done the right way. And this is such an evil thing because you can actually be jealous of somebody you don't even know. I mean, that's how this can affect you. You lose a perspective of, I need to reach out to these people. You don't even know them. But you're just jealous of them. Paul said, here's on the checklist, get it out. Don't be doing that. Time is ticking. Don't be doing that. He wraps it up by saying, and don't make any provisions regarding your flesh lust. Verse 14 He ends, verse 14, and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. I hope that challenge that we've given you not to put unclean things before your eyes has been a victory year for you because it'll be next month. In October, we challenge you, put no unclean thing before your eyes. If you didn't make it, start over. Let's go. Let's get zeroed in again. Let's get the discipline. But if you made it, it's a wonderful thing because Paul makes it very clear here that part of the problem for all of this stuff that leads to all of this is people just, they make provisions for their flesh. And there are some believers, and by the way, Paul is talking about believers here, let us behave properly. He puts himself in the mix of this. So sometimes believers can make every provision and allowance for the flesh, and Paul says, no, make no provision. If your flesh struggle is drunkenness, get alcohol out of your house, period. If your flesh struggle is immorality or impurity or sensuality, then you get that stuff off your TV or out of your computer or get rid of it. Make no provisions for your flesh. If your problem is jealousy or outbursts of anger or disputes or factions... You need to take a serious look at what's going on in your mind and heart and get it out of there. Paul is clear here to point out that those who pursue these kinds of things are not going to have a rewarded inheritance when they get into eternity. When Jesus Christ comes back to get them, they're not going to be hearing, well done, good and faithful servants. You don't want to be making provisions for your flesh to persist in any of these things in this list. You want to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. A wise, godly life from God's perspective is a disciplined, organized life. A person who is really getting ready to go takes a checklist. And they work right down through it systematically. I'll do this, this, this. I won't do this, this, and this. Now, it's time for some to wake up. You, uh, you need to take this checklist, and you take it, you go to work on you. The night is almost gone. The day is almost here. So take action now. 
Paul wrote these words to the Romans 1966 years ago. He wrote these words to the Romans 717,590 days ago. That's when he penned this list. And time is ticking. Time's not on our side. It's on God's side. So look at the clocks around your house. See how many things in your house tell you the time. Because what those clocks tell us is it won't be long. We will be gone. We will see Jesus Christ. As you get ready to go, take the list and work through it. Let's pray. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, right now in this moment you can settle that. Just admit the truth. You're a sinner. Maybe some of the things on the list we went through today, you say, I've done that. Well, just admit that and invite Christ to come into your life and save you from that. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and we went through that list, and perhaps some of those things hit you, then get them out. Get them out. Father, we thank you so much for your precious word. We thank you that you've given it to us. It is as relevant in our day as it was when Paul wrote this. Lord, we pray that the Spirit of God would cause all of us to be more alert and more awake to the times and the seasons that are soon to put us into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. For anything that you've done here today, we thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.